Hello and welcome to part 12 of our Understanding Class series. Today is Saturday the 21st of May 2022 and I'm your host, Tom O'Brien. We finish chapter 3, Metatheoretical Foundations of Charles Tilley's Durable Inequality. This week I have the new patron, Harrison Collette, to thank. If you like those extra patron-only episodes and creating Discord over on the Discord server, head on over to Patreon, throw me a few commie dollar. Also, if you'd like to help contribute to the book project, please head on over to the website, theclassessocietyinmotion.com. Every donor will get a signed copy of the book upon release, their name and acknowledgements, and can join in a reading group when released. We are both very grateful for the positive response to the project so far, and we are super motivated and writing away, working hard at it like a pair of Irish navvies. The link to the site is in the show notes, as are the slides that we used in this episode. If you'd like to be able to see the slides as we are speaking, you can check out this episode over on the YouTube channel. Okay, let's join the discussion. So we have to finish chapter chapter three. This is our chapter about Tilly. This is uh, the meta-theoretical meta foundation of Charles Tilly's durable inequality. Okay, so we left off at this point last week where we're going to talk about how Tilly talks about generating categorical inequality through organizations. Okay, let me hit this one. Tilly proposes a fourfold typology of the different ways categorical distinctions within organizations for example, between managers and workers, can be linked to categorical distinctions external to organizations. For example, black slash white, male, female. Okay, so there's four basic typologies here. Number one, he calls gradients. So a situation in which there exist internal inequalities across individuals, but without any categorical divisions. Okay, so that'd be a distinction between the individuals in the organization, but they're not like, it's not a hierarchy of like male versus female, managers versus workers or anything. It's it's just a gradient, okay? So it's like a continuous, a continuous categorization. Yeah, like someone, someone in the office won the lottery. There's no categorical division, but there is an inequality. They just okay, happen so- to get some endowment of money that was not linked to any categorical cause. Could it be linked to uh, your ability? Yeah. Yeah, okay. So uh, number two then is the local frontiers. So these are internal categorical divisions alone, unlinked to any exterior category. So I think by this he means mainly like between a kind of separation between management and workers internally. Would that be fair, Kyle? No, I don't think so. Because I think that would count as a reinforced inequality, because that that's a that's a standard practice across across many organizations. So I think we're talking more about like peculiar organizational arrangements. Okay, I just thought of one that I've experienced personally. I was uh, working at a polytechnic school here in Calgary some time ago. And my department was a service department, 
in which we didn't actually have our own students. We just went and taught students from other programs. And because of that arrangement, we were in an inferior position to the other departments. So that had no categorical relationship to other schools or to other practices or to the general hierarchy of our, of our trades that we were doing. It was just purely the way the school was set up. So yeah, that, that's an example of a local frontier. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. So now we have imported frontiers. It's the third one. Externally based categorical divisions alone not match to any internal organizational divisions. So we could, this could be male, female, black, white, whatever the hell. And finally, then we have fourth, our, four, our fourth one, which is reinforced inequality, a situation in which there are matching interior and exterior categories. So Kyle, does this mean that this is like, um, does he mean by matching interior and exterior, does he mean basically matching local frontier and imported frontiers? Uh, yes, that's right. It's a yeah. combination of the two. So yeah, if you have a, a company in which there is regulated gender segregation, and then that also is reinforcing the gender segregation in society as a whole, uh, or gender inequality. Yep. Okay, let's have a look at the graph that describes this. So this is one of the worst graphs I've ever come across. So and, let's, and you like graphs. I like graphs. So let's have a look. So essentially, he's making he's he is attempting here to draw what he's talking about in those about those previous four. He's saying at the bottom we've got costs of generating stability in inequalities within organizations. So basically, how much the cost is to keep the organization stable. That's like your your x axis and your y axis. Then is your degree of stability inequalities within organization okay one is the cost of generation and then there's other is degree of stability so he's trying to make this case that like there is a kind of a hierarchy of these four things we just talked about and the most expensive one is the gradient no real categories used to impose the hierarchy to manage the hierarchy then it's an imported frontier then it's a local frontier and then it's reinforced inequality, which is the local and the imported and the kind of gradient and all combined. Like, so there's a couple of things here. I, I won't go into slagging the graph for its kind of technical <laughs> problems, but like he's making a distinction here about the order of these actual typologies for which are most effective. So he's saying that imported frontiers are more effective or like, so basically are cheaper to it's use a, it's efficiency local, yeah right it, it's yeah. uh it's stability per unit of cost is what we're talking about yeah so like why what do you, why is he saying like this is tilly this is tilly's argument why do we think he's saying that the imported frontier is cheaper than the local frontier like why is it that saying like using race as a category is cheaper than using something internal to the, the organizational structure itself. Tony, you got it all wrong. Yeah, it's it's the other way around because yeah. if the lower it is on on the the, the right hand side here, uh, the more expensive it is, the less efficient it is. 
Uh, okay. So yeah. So he's saying that a a purely local form of inequality is actually more efficient than an imported one. Oh yeah, that that's you're you're totally correct. Which which makes me ask the question even more, huh? Because I it, it actually would strike me as that the imported one has got less cost than the imported. Yeah, and I mean, even for uh, Eric Olin Wright, he's like, uh, really? <laughs> Do you think so? <laughs> uh, he's he's going he's gonna to question this at the end of the chapter. But I mean, this is absolutely just, you know, Tilly writing a list of things on a paper napkin and then drawing lines from the, the, from the origin point to the, the, the list he made. It's, yeah. it's ridiculous. This seems totally made up. Like, like, because I'm like, how would you, what social factors are you considering in your cost equations to make this, you know, I don't know. I have a theory about graphs that, that seem to be informative, but are actually like just nonsense charts that have equal spacing to look parsimonious. And that's what this seems to me to be. Cause I'm just like, I have no yeah. idea how you figure this, this is, out. This is the most microeconomics bullshit I have seen in a while. It is is just appalling. Have you heard? The technical term for this kind of graph is Paduma. Pulled directly what? out of my ass. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's uh, it reminds me like this is essentially the Laffer curve, isn't it? Like, have you heard that story? Yeah, 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 yeah. It's it's on the level of Laffer, which yeah. was literally written on a paper napkin when it was conceived. So yeah. No, exactly. This is this is this is a, a laugher tier micro econ brain rot product here. Yeah, and for people who don't know what the laugher curve is, that's essentially the uh, you know rising tide lifts all boats, and there's an optimum like way tax rate at which it will like. What what, what exactly is it exactly? The, the idea is if you lower the tax rate, you'll increase the you de incentivize. Yeah. yeah. You'll de-incentivize the amount of people to hide taxes and tax loops, thus actually increasing your revenue generation. And it's not an insane, it's actually not a totally insane theory, but it's it's pretty nutty in practice. There's no evidence for it. And yeah, it was literally drawn on the back of a napkin. Like, well, like yeah, I don't mind. Like this, so this is like this graph, I think it's it's one of the strengths that that Wright says about this is that like he's given you a, an actual theory that you can test so like i actually don't mind it for that you know but i i just think the graph is is itself not good yeah uh, no i think i think the it's it's not the 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 ranking the explicit ranking of forms that he gives here that i object to it's the presentation of it as like a series of linear functions for no reason whatsoever other than to seem sciencey Yes, and like so, there like you could imagine a world where this is correct; it has the right order, but also that, but it might vary. The order might jump up and down depending on, like, you know, the amount of costs of generating stability. So you could imagine, like, when the costs are lower, the the, the which ones are more effective might jump above each other versus when they're higher. You know, like the fact yeah, that this I mean, is static over all costs over all time over all organizational forms is a, is, a, it, is a major claim. It's absolutely conceivable that the efficiency of the gradient would drop exponentially as you added more people, 
right? Like it's 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 like yeah, there's no reason why it would be lying. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, like not only like not only should they not be lines, but like not, but they should also like maybe intersect and go above each other under different circumstances too. So it's yeah. it's it's a major major kind of. It seems it's, like a, a simplification of a complex system, essentially. It, it, yeah, it's, it's just the, the graph provides negative value here. <laughs> yeah, I um, mean, I, I, would, I would go further than that. I mean, not only is it negative value, if you, even if this is true, it, 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 it's like the similar problem when you talk about market equilibrium and you always assume that like the closer you are to market equilibrium, you have a linear you have linear benefits. And when you actually look at empirical studies, there's no reason to do that. But also I don't really know what are we, what are we gauging as efficiency cost here? Actually? Like that's not really clear either. What yep. is the, what do you mean? What's being made more or less efficient by these particular, like what, what cost is being made more or less efficient by these particular forms of, of inequalities within the organization. Monetary cost of maintaining the inequality, I presume. Oh, but that's the thing. Like the the cost could be social cohesion. It could be like organizational overhead, like administrative costs. Like who knows what? There, there's yeah. no indication of of like what as is actually being measured here. Yeah, monetary cost. Where? Like, <laughs> like because that that actually does matter. I mean, like. Where is it? Monetary costs and direct and direct implementation. Monetary costs and externalities. Aggregate of both. Like I don't know any of that from this chart. Like, yeah, I assume matter. it's just internal. I'd assume it's just a simple internal cost. <laughs> that's my instinct. I never ever thought about it, even trying to make the case for externalities. <laughs> you know, a graph like this doesn't speak externalities to me. <laughs> No, uh, I, I, the graph like this doesn't speak, Tom. That's like the what we're learning. Yeah. Okay, but we do we do understand the general point he's making, though, that there are different types of the typology of different techniques for maintaining inequalities within organizations, and these are the the four main types. And that he has a ranking he has a ranking for them, which may or may not be correct. The relationship may not be linear. It's more than it's not linear. No relationship is ever fucking linear. It's not linear, right? And they they may jump all over the place. But we know what he's kind of saying, at least. Yeah, but I think we may have skipped a slide to get to this chart. To yeah, so this will at least explain what his reasoning is, right? Okay. Do you want to take this one then, Kyle? Okay. So. Uh... Tilly argues the tendency for inequalities to move to the reinforced inequality type, except where surplus extraction operates efficiently by means of gradients or local frontiers. So the tendency is towards reinforced inequality, except for some special cases where gradients or local frontiers happen to be efficient, as, for example, in the example that I gave where uh, uh, about the polytechnic school I worked at. If exploitation occurs efficiently without categorical inequality, then those who control the crucial resources rarely incorporate exterior categories since there would be little incentive for them to do so. So Tom here has given the example of in IT. It's not necessary to uh, move to reinforced inequality, I guess is what you're saying there, uh, Tom? 
Yeah, like you don't, you know, like you don't, I just think it, it, you know, these really kind of IT monopoly kind of firms where there's loads of money swishing around, you know, yep. in, inside the, it's very kind of open and there are very little categorization. They don't rely on race, gender, any of this stuff. They're usually really trendy and, you know, everything because there's just money sloshing around. They don't need to bother with that shit. Right. Uh, yeah, there's uh, what do you call it? Uh, imported inequality but it's not reinforced yeah organizations tend to move towards reinforced inequality because in general tilly argues this is the cheapest way of sustaining a given level of inequality within organizations a system based on solely gradients would be the least stable and most costly to maintain because without strong incentives to endure short-term injustice in the expectation of long-term mobility or other rewards turnover and small-scale conflict make gradients unstable arrangements. So this is obviously a big question mark for communism uh, <laughs> that uh, we would need to grapple with. Say more on that. Well, okay, so uh, in a communist system, inequality would be based basically, you know, purely on gradients, right? Because uh, we would be abolishing other forms of inequality. So that would indicate, according to Tilly's logic, a high degree of organizational instability and a high cost of maintaining the organizational structure. What do you mean by that, Kyle? Why would it be, what do you mean by gradients? Why would it be based on gradients? Surely it'd because, be based on work done. That's a gradient. Because, because, yeah, because, because the, uh, the, the causes of inequality would be accidental individual. Right, which is actually something Marx, Marx actually kind of addresses this in the critique of the growth of program when he like slaps down fair work for fair pay schemes. It's something, it's something that Marx wouldn't have articulated this way, but he kind of intuited the problem. Uh, is this a bit where you're talking about how the measure is unequal? Is, is right. that part of the... Okay, yes. yeah, but so, so basically your labor time is one hour label is equal to another person's labor time. And, you know any measure is unjust but surely that the inequality in the com in communism will be based on your amount of labor that you performed so like which is which is a gradient yep it's a gradient mm -hmm. which 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 also by the way i mean like this that, is, what's this the cost is my, to that though i don't see the cost kyle to that there's Sorry, a there's a social instability cost it encourages different kinds of factions it encourages uh, different kinds of classes. This is why, I mean, like, this is why there is that whole thing about, like, the fair work, the, a fair day's wage for for fair day's work is a non-starter in, in the critique of the Goethe program. Like, it, that's, like, that's literally not the point. And if you make it the point, you're going to exacerbate these gradient inequalities and make your system highly unstable, which is why I think most labor money, like, uh, labor money schemas are are not just, undesirable or don't abolish value i mean they're undesirable because they're stupid like it it would lead to all kinds of of problems if you were if you had it hard set on that rule and and marx realizes that it's not hard to figure out like you just think about you just think about natural human difference and then and then and then even treat all labor the same labor productivity can't be the same even if individual effort is and go from there. So it would not just recapitulate class society, it would recapitulate class society in a highly unstable way. Sorry, I think I, I don't know if I'm totally misunderstanding people's points. <laughs> I well, don't know if I'm arguing against you or not. 
like fundamentally it's it's the it's the issue with the the even the theoretical concept of meritocracy right you can't you, the, if you, even if you made merit just based on labor all right just labor inputs right getting what you put in and just getting it back out in a direct manner what you do is you recapitulate gradient gradient inequalities between people with different ability levels and that would be socially destabilizing. And again, Marx actually realizes that. I mean, like Marx says, that's what that line is about. That's his attack on Lasallianism, fair work for fair pay, which is kind of why I, why I always, when we get in labor token schemas, unless it addresses that, I just throw it out from moment one because it turns Marx into the very thing he was critiquing. Sorry. Uh, I, so Marx was saying that one hour of labor was one hour of labor, no matter what the skill level or the merit, how how productive one worker is. No, that's not what he was saying because that 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 logic does not flow into. So what are you saying? He's saying then he's saying that you can't ba that you literally can't base the product like societal equality based off of inputs. You can't. No, no, like he's making uh, a case. Uh, so wait, 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 wait. You can't chat over me now. He is saying that any measure that you make will have will be unequal. Yes, that's what he's saying. Okay, exactly. Yeah. So, but that is not to say that he is not saying you should choose that measure. He's the, saying that is the measure you should choose. Then why is he really critiquing, critiquing LaSalle for it? That doesn't make any fucking sense, Tom. He's Just not because your labor LaSalle token that. schemas that you're beating off to uh, buy into this doesn't mean that it makes any fucking sense. No, I, I think, look, this is another argument for another day. We can have that argument. You can come on the show and we can shout at each other. But I, I, I totally disagree. Let's keep going. Yeah, because we're not... We're, we're going to stand here for an hour. And uh, send me the LaSalle stuff. I'll read it and we can have the argument. But I think Marx is actually complaining about offering differential wages in, in, in that section. No, he's not, completely not. He said no. He's, he's saying he's he's critiquing. This is what I how I understand it. He's critiquing differential wages, but he's also saying that any measure you you choose will be unequal. But this is the measure that it needs to be. That's the way I understand he's saying it. Okay, that one worker can have five children, another can have none. So even though like he's got more stuff to feed, it's unequal on him. But like that's you just have to choose one, and this is the one to choose. That's the way I understood it. But if you can convince me I'm wrong, fair enough. But it just doesn't make it doesn't make any sense for it to be the critique of the fucking Goethe program, critiquing that exact point that LaSalle is making about labor inputs, and then saying that that's what you should draw a conclusion from it. It makes no sense, and it would be highly susceptible to this critique. And if you can't fucking game theory that out, you can't put it out, you can't put it on like a basic like oh, this would reproduce inequalities, it's because you're thinking like with an engineer brain and I should take you out back and have you fucking shot. <laughs> <laughs> right, because as I understand it, like the, the fundamental critique of that section of critique of the Gotha program is that if you tie if you tie people's ability to access things solely to their their labor input, then like you're you're reproducing inequalities on the backside. Because people's needs aren't the same. So people's ability to access things, material things in their life should be based on need. I mean, that's that's the entire from each according to their, their ability to each according to their need.
Yeah, but that's higher not, stage communism, Tiberius. That's higher stage communism. That's not the lower stage that Marx talks about in the. You'll in, never in get the higher stage communism with a labor input scheme. What you'll get is what you'll get is devolution into class society. It's right. fucking easy to game out. Like it, it's 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 like. So you're saying that the fact that there is no exploitation and everybody gets the same wages will give you class society, but differential wages will give you not class society. That's like the dumbest fucking logic I've ever heard in my life. I, well, because it's not different. Come different on, defend wages. that, Derek. That's it's the different yeah, fucking logic I've ever heard. Hey, 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 I'm going to take you out the back and I'm going to fucking put a fucking no, spade in your head. Two, because I actually know how to use guns. Three. For, but let's, for but two of us can shout, Derek. Two of us can fucking shout. Yeah, except you're fucking making a stupid argument because you just. No, I'm not. You're making a dumb you argument. Fuck you. You posited a false binary. You fuck stupid you. Shit. Fuck you. <laughs> like, like, like. Seriously, you you like, literally did the what? laziest fucking freshman one on one bullshit argument fuck that I've ever on, heard. Come on, Derek. You come on. You shout at people and she shouted you back. You don't like it. Fuck off. Right. Let's keep going. No. Make a good argument. I made I a good argument. I no, made a didn't. fucking good you argument. You posited a false binary, you stupid fuck. What the hell are you fucking talking about? Now, let's go. Next one, Kyle. <laughs> okay, uh, we'll leave the go to program discussion <laughs> to uh, another day. Needless to say, this point that Tilly is making needs to be refuted on some level for communism to be realizable. Something needs to be done to address that. And that is the only point I was making, which is that, yeah, if you can't address this and you're a communist, you're in trouble. All right. Uh, yeah, okay, we're always in trouble, but we're really in trouble if we have a fundamental logical error. That's the biggest kind of trouble. All right. Inequality that depends on local frontiers is more stable than gradients or imparted frontiers. So the argument here is, a organizational arrangement within an organization that has no connection to external inequality is more stable than one that is external but not supported internally and is also more stable than one that is purely based on accidental factors. So I, I can certainly buy the, the idea that local frontiers are more stable in gradients within an organization of, of a certain size. But uh, this this one about imported frontiers seems very silly to me. Uh, that's 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 my bit. Can we can we concretize that for people? Yeah. So uh, essentially, uh, he's saying that if you have a org chart in your organization or uh, internal regulations inside your company that say that uh, Department A is paid less or cause department A members to be paid less than department B or department A just being starved of funding in general, that is more stable than say pay inequality between men and women that is being caused by broad social factors. And I, that just seems absurd to me, given that we have like so many liberal policies to try to address or game these imported frontiers, and yet pay inequality is highly stable. Yeah, it seems kind of very, I, I, I can't, I don't know, I can't understand why he would put like this one, you know, local as more stable than imported. He had a is boss it, he really hated once and, you know, it all just, it all just came down to that. You know what, his, <laughs> his department 
his department in the university was starved of funding. And so this was his way of getting back at his boss. That's, that's, that's my, my, my theory. I'm reading, I'm reading an objection to our analysis in the comments that I actually think we do have to address, which is that what, what is actually at stake here between the local and the imported is the individual transaction cost. Could we maybe tease why that may or may not be a problem? Okay, so the transaction cost is higher or lower for a local frontier than a than an imported frontier. Yeah, is that what I you're saying? Yeah, but I would have thought that the actual the opposite would be the case, Derek. Though, wouldn't you? Because like, there's no cost to an internal organization to like a societal wide, you know, black versus white or man versus female thing. It's not an added cost. It it seems very implausible to me because imported frontiers are presuppositions to any interaction you enter into. Uh, mm -hmm. So like, like gender roles don't need to be policed as frequently as local frontiers, in my opinion, because so much of that stuff is ingrained in people's behaviors and their mental presuppositions. Uh, it, it, it's just, yeah, I think like, you know, the fight over funding at the annual meeting over which department gets what is going to be more above board contestable than an imported frontier, which is just going to be in the in the air. Yeah, so you're on you're on my side then. Well, I, I'm yes. on this one. I'm not sure. I'm not sure whose side I'm on. I'm I'm, I'm trying to like trying to figure out because it would actually have implications for the reinforced. The reinforced and inequality too, because reinforce reinforcement would wouldn't that necessarily have more policing costs, not less? Yeah, yeah, but it'd be more stable. I think. Yeah, it point. would be stable, but and and I guess the stability would offset the policing cost in its overall cost. I'm trying. I'm trying to figure out if I could turn this into equation. What? The, how would I do that? Like, what would this it, equation be? This like, equation would be literally. G plus L, G plus I plus L plus R equals to, equals S. Okay, <laughs> it's a linear equation. It's some kind of like, <laughs> you know, it's a line. You know, it, it feels like, like a very no. It's here. What it is? It's G plus I plus L plus R times C equals S. That's what it is. You know. That's, wow. That's yeah, exactly what it's saying. I don't, I don't in. know how. I, I don't know how you would. I don't know how useful that would possibly be, but, yeah. um, but I mean, I, I, I mean, I see what I, I see how you could go either way on the, like, it seems to me like it would, it would be hard to know actually. Yeah. I think mean, it'd be very hard to know. And I think, you know, depending on like how much cost they are, they could flip, you know, and, you know, historical time periods, it could be different. You know, there's just lots of shit going on there that it's very unlikely to be stable as this graph well, I, I, you're right, Tom. I think that import the imported frontier is highly dependent on how much external cost is being borne by society and maintaining it, right? So, like, if you have a society that is highly committed to racial inequality or highly committed to gender inequality, and there's a lot of work being done outside of the organization to reinforce that, that the imported frontier is more efficient within the organization. Yeah, absolutely. Like think about like say if you're working as a Palestinian in Israeli society 
and they had lower pay for Palestinians versus, you know, and Muslims versus Jews in Israel. It'd be super fucking cheap to to maintain that. Or in Northern Ireland, like where the big shipping industries would only hire Protestants. Very hard to get in there. Or I don't know. Super like cheap. The, the wage differentials between blacks and almost everybody else in the United States being maintained for a century and a half. Like, yeah, yeah. Or, or women and men differentials, you know, you name it. Like, I think they're very, very simple to, that's why I'm very uh, skeptical. But maybe, maybe for the same amount of cost, they're more effective with local frontier. Uh, I don't know. I, I, I just think, anyway. Yeah, I, they, we, they, I, to me, there's got, to, to, for me to justify this, there's like some kind of variable missing. That I, like, that I could see how this might be true, but I would need to know, like, like how, how local stuff is inherently more stable than external stuff without policing in a way that doesn't lower it. I just, I, I, I actually can't see it the more I think about it. I think doesn't, it doesn't, if I remember the chapter correctly, EOY also. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's yeah, yeah he's, he's got his own there. criticisms. Yeah. It's like, you know, in mathematics, you know, if you've got like any graph, you can pick points on any graph. And you can approximate that graph with the polynomial, right? And you know, but it doesn't mean that the polynomial would be pretty would be good or not. There'll, there'll always be a polynomial to fit points on a graph. And you know, this is what these fucking dumb graphs always end up doing. It's just how would they call it? Well, if we if we don't interpolation, focus on the, some weird. If we don't focus on the graph, though, I mean, like, like I still think this prin- this particular principle would be hard to to even figure out how you would empirically justify it exactly, like. Well, I think Wright makes the case that you might actually find, you might have in, empirical evidence of over time period, some of the uh, internal, say those external things changing, and you can analyze whether it, it, it becomes more or less stable versus previous times. You know, I but think it definitely so couldn't be a linear graphing model. It couldn't be a linear oh, no, model. No, it won't no be way. linear anyway. Yeah. Okay, let, let's have a, Derek, do you want to take this, this slide sure. here? This is where he's going to critique this stuff. Generating categorical inequality through organizations. It is not clear why specific rank ordering of costs required to produce stability associated with different configurations of categorical inequalities should be a universal tendency across societies with different cultures, technologies, and political systems. What are general mechanisms that imply that for any given level of inequality, the stability effects of categorical inequalities imported from society at large will have a trans-historical tendency to be weaker then the stability effects of externally generated categorical inequalities question mark while tightly matching internal and external categories might be the cheapest way of establishing a system of exploitation it is much less clear why it should be a transhistorical universal ah uh, so this is this is right actually kind of being a marxist for once yeah yeah <laughs> i think it's right i think it's uh Look, I think that Tilly's onto something with the typologies, but I think he's overclaiming a ranking and overclaiming a universality of it. That's right. That's, it, that's the point. He's naturalizing the mode of he's naturalizing the mode of production and the relations within that mode to go back into the past and forward into the future. Yeah, yes. and even making a claim about the current one that is not very defensible. <laughs> Nevertheless, I think the four typologies are good. That's the irony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they're 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 useful ideas, right? Okay. Are we are we done with this kind of uh, general general idea? This typology. I think we're on to the kind of more overall critiques of oh, Tilly. I, I will just say one thing uh, though to address a point. 
you could say that that actual like gradients don't actually exist that these are actually derived if you go far back enough from categorical issues in like they don't exist in any significant way but i think it's still useful to have the ideal type of a gradient there conceptually like it's necessary to at least conceive of that possibility in order to understand the other ones effectively that's a pretty big point would you tease that out a yeah. little bit yeah yeah like you know like this is just sort of social constructivism in terms of like well okay but maybe you know this could you know go to like disability studies or something like that to show that like well these inequalities are actually they may seem to just be matters of individual ability but they're reliant on contexts that are constructed categorically right um, so so yeah. this is like the precision versus accuracy problem yeah i mean yeah. like in, in some ways like like there is no way to have a gradient that that is purely yeah i mean even like like w even with something like that you think about different kinds of manual labor just limit it to manual labor the abilities and disability gradients are going to vary pretty like pretty extremely depending on just the specific task you're doing right like so so abstracting to an ideal type about that is actually very useful but also isn't going to tell you that much about any individual case is right. That what it's, still, it's still useful to have the ideal type because it, it provides a point of contrast of the other ideas. Got it. Yeah, I, I would agree. Yeah, Con uh, concur. Okay, now we're on to the kind of overall critiques of Tilly's durable inequality. Okay, so there's, he's going to take them on for conceptual imprecision. So what the first one is, we're going to get into these in more detail. The first one is problematic anti-essentialism. The second is conflating methodological individualism with atomism. And third is the misplaced meta-theoretical criticism. Okay, that's quite a, quite a goddamn mouthful. Let, let's try so, the first yeah. one. So the problematic anti-essentialism. Tilly draws a sharp contrast between views that assume essences of various social entities and views that assume bonds. Okay, so he's kind of like juxtaposing like uh, relations with, with essentialism, with essences. Okay. He advocates a possibility of assuming not essences, but bonds, relational models of social life, beginning with interpersonal transactions or ties. Okay, but a bond is not the opposite of an essence. This is E.O. Wright speaking here. Like A theorist can just as easily be an essentialist about bonds or interpersonal transactions or ties as about the entities bonded together, the persons interacting, or the things that are tied together. So, you know... This is the like, you know, maybe Marx might one of the essences of Marx's analysis of capitalism will be like the social analyzing the social relations. And that doesn't mean that like he's an essentialist or a relationist. He's essential about relations. <laughs> yeah. Okay. And finally, the central issue in essentialism versus anti-essentialism is the issue of whether or not there are any salient properties of the elements that figure in our social theories that are stable and invariant across radically different contexts. Okay, anybody have any points on this? The bond is not the opposite of an essence. A theorist can just easily be an essentialist about bonds or in a personal transactions. It seems like a pretty <laughs> trivial point, doesn't it? Right, I mean, like, it's, like, it's like, yeah, duh, but I'm not seeing why this matters. Like, yeah, it's literally just him going, he's being imprecise here. It's basically like a, an analytical Marxist kind of going, ah, you mixed up your terms here. Fuck you. Okay, uh, uh, Tiberius, do you want to take this one? Conflating methodological individualism with atomism. 
Sure. So his characterization, Tilly's characterization of methodological individualism collapses the distinctions between individualistic and atomistic social theories. Going into that, methodological atomism completely marginalizes relation properties, but this is not the case for methodological individualists. John Elster insists that the methodological individualism includes an account of all sorts of relational properties of individuals, especially in regards to power. What Elster rejects is methodological collectivism, not relational analysis. Methodological collectivism posits collective entities like classes as actors. And he vehemently objects to statements of the form, the working class had no choice but to fight since classes are not the sort of entities that make choices. I don't think I agree with that. <laughs> I, 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 I think that uh, there is a, a quantity into quality difference that happens uh, with groups that has analytical value. So I, I, I would say that uh, I would be more of a methodological collectivist than is argued here. But methodological individualism is actually a... Uh a foundational tenet of analytic Marxism. Like, it's actually... Yeah, yeah, I'm just saying I don't agree with it. I I, I agree with it in so much as you use Marxist categories to explain individual action, you have to have an individual explanation so you don't go all ultra-serian structuralist. Oh, for sure. Uh, Yeah, because, because, I mean, like, the ultra-serian structuralist, their argument about ideology is actually a part of the whole problem. Like, it's it's kind of a formal logical fallacy that's highly theoretized around. But conversely, I think you, you can talk about you can talk about what aggregates do as different from group like I don't know why this people get stuck up on this, but it is something that it, specific to analytical Marxists that they insist it, on. It's that. just a, like a a hard bedrock foundational assumption about microeconomics and neoclassical economics that is utterly sacrosanct and i think they just buy it um, i mean they also buy i mean they buy marginalism they buy a lot of stuff that i don't think yeah. they should buy but yeah it's just like well we're going to use these tools so we're going to accept this this premise which i don't think is valid to the exclusion of collectivism I mean, like, for example, Elster vehemently objects to statements to the form of the working class had no choice but the fight since classes are not the source of entities that make choices. I actually think, like, superficially, on a linguistic level, that's true. Classes don't make choices. But you can still talk about aggregate probabilities in a way that makes Elster's point just seem like, okay, well, that's just a description. Like, that's really a language problem more than anything else. But but even like, you know, like people join together into organizations and they take decisions collectively, you know, it, they're, not mean, all, this, they're not all individual acts. Sometimes you, you it, know, if if I were to accept Elster's point here, it would be to reject everything that Beer says about organizations like this. Yeah. Is, it, 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 it's just it, like this is. I don't think this makes any kind of organizational sense when you actually look at the way these things work. One, you have active deliberation, uh, uh, and Tom's point stands on that. But two, I think you do have 
something analogous to choice in, in the way that groups structure themselves and thus bind the choices of the group. It's not true, like, individual agency, but it's not not. I know that's. I know that seems like I'm skating it, but it, our answers to this come from cybernetic theory, right? Like, yeah. But, but I even think that if you were to even to look at the distinction between biology and physics, like, when, when you see an organism act in the world, you don't say, like, a human walk into the shop to buy a pack of cigarettes, you don't say, oh, well, the forces on the that atom move this other force towards that. No, you, you abstract to the organism level and no one has a problem with that. Well, but I mean, what they, what, what I know what Elster would say is Elster says the organism has a brain which can make, which can make a choice, whereas a group, an aggregate doesn't have any sort of centralized no. nervous system. But, 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 but I, I also know that we have systems theory and cybernetic theory to say, What no. are relations? What are relations but physical fucking connections? You know right, what I but mean? I, well, I mean, but no, so it doesn't have a brain like a human does, but it does kind of have a brain, and they do have relations, and there are ways in which the way you set up those relations are actual choices that the organization kind of makes. I mean, it is analogous, yeah. and I realize that's... I, I, but it just seems like you're going super literal just to just to reject anything that doesn't basically buy classical mac, uh, macroeconomics. I, I think that that Elster argument is just idealism. Like, honestly, that's 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 not a reasonable argument given what we know about these things. Right, and then you have, you have a great counterexample in in the the behavior of like crowds of people. They don't like crowds of people don't act like an individual would. Right. Well, I mean, one. It, it insists that the whole acts acts either acts as just an aggregate of the parts or is entirely separate. And two, I think another way we can talk about this is I think probability and and in informational systems theory does sort of say, like does sort of put a kibosh on this. And I also think biology does too, frankly, because like why, why I am a compatibilist between free will and determinism, like I do take that position that we have something like agency functional off for this meaningfully to say, you know, to say that we are agents. If you want a bit real technical, like we don't totally have agency in the way that Elster would be describing as individuals as individuals either. Like yeah. <laughs> it is not a reasonable materialist argument. It's just, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's trying to be, it's trying to be materialist, but falls into idealism when you analyze it. I mean, um, to me, this is just that that's that assumption is one of the things that is why why analytic Marxists never stay Marxist, frankly. Yeah, yeah, I think it's yeah. baked in the cake. It's baked in the cake. OK, let me just go on with some of these. He's critiquing the like the this conflating methodological individualism with atomism. So even the methodological individualists of the neoclassical economists and game theory do not universally fit the description of atomized individualism by, offered by Tilly. They have budget constraints, they have endowments, assets, production functions determined by technology, interact in markets, etc. They recognize when firms have monopoly power, not because anyone's preference or mental states are different, but because monopolies have the power to extract rents through exchange relations. What distinguishes methodological individualism is an insistence on the primacy of micro-level analyses over macro-level analyses. It is committed to micro-foundationalism 
and perhaps to micro-reductionism, but not atomism. Relations are therefore explanatory for methodological individualists, but these are restricted to relations among individual persons. At the core of Tilly's works are a set of claims about the effects of macro-structures and relations. At least part of the explanatory work is done by relations among relations, not merely relations among individuals. That's kind of an important point. Who wants to take this last bit of relations amongst relations? What's he talking about there? So, so he's talking about the way relations amongst relational groups would have determinative effect. And he's saying that um, if we follow Elster and the analytical Marxists, that you can only explain you can only explain relations amongst individuals. So you can't look at this class space. with that class, like yeah, this class with versus, that class, yeah. or or actually even like like they would say the class distinctions arise because of relations amongst individuals alone. So like this class and that class interact because they're individual bourgeoisie and they're individual proletariat. But what they would not say is like you could say that there are relations that emerge from the interactions of the class as a class with another class as a class with a third category as a class, such as, you know, the petit bourgeois or with a, with another collective group such as race, gender, etc. in and of itself. So it basically this makes de demography impossible, I think, like actually when I really think about it, like they would have this objection to any. And I also think, Tom, that point three is important, but it's also a distinction without or it's important to them. But I don't think I don't see what the distinction they're making really is like the difference between micro foundationalism and uh, to even micro reductionism. But it's not atomism like. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's they're saying, oh, well, relations are attributes of individuals. And uh, relations can be treated as atoms themselves. So you could have like an edge between two points in a network is an entity of its own kind. It does, it, it, it exists, but the only kinds of connections it has is between individuals. So it's like, yeah, it's, it's, you don't have any emergent effects in this system. It's, it's purely individuals and relations. So it's not atomistic in a technical sense because these things are connected to one another by meaningful relations. But yeah, it's kind of a distinction without a difference. Right, because it's basically just including relations in those atoms. There, well, and, there, and are, relations, there are no higher relations, order interactions than, yes. than, than those like two various entities. Yeah. There the are first relations order relations. Are, relations first are order. equally, yeah, yeah. Relations are equally fundamental to atoms, uh, to individuals, but they are strictly first order. Yeah, there's no second order, third order, fourth order, because we know, we know from looking at systems theory and all that, that they don't exist, do they, Kyle? Higher order oh, interactions. No, no, no. Emergence, no, never, never, never. impossible. Feedbacks don't exist. Loops don't. Feedbacks. <laughs> nothing. Everything is linear. Everything is linear. We've learned that here tonight. It's just like the paper napkin graph. <laughs> yeah. It's the Laffer yeah. fucking curve. At least Laffer had a fucking curve. That's what I'm going to say. <laughs> At least this is nonlinear. <laughs> um, okay. Who wants to take meta theoretical criticism? I will. Uh, Derek. 
misplaced meta-theoretical criticism. Tilly characterizes the conventional approach of most social scientists to inequality as is discrimination against women, racial minorities, etc. Instead of treating the residual differences between categories once all possible sources of individual variations are taken into account, treat it as the potion of inequality that corresponds to locally relevant categories, and then see how much the residual can be explained by variations in human capital effort and similar individual level factors. This specification of discrimination as residual differences between categories after individual attributes have been accounted for is the result of pragmatic methodological considerations, not of any substantive priority given to individual attributes over structural causes of inequality. Like what he's kind of getting to here is like, like Tilly is saying that like the way that people actually go to analyze in the real world empirically look at trying to see what the, what, what are the causes of these different, uh, you know, what, wh how much of the differential in the pay pay is by due to race or being a woman or whatever. And that he's complaining about the methodology where they try and control for everything and they leave what's left out at the end is, oh, well, that's that's women or that's racial minorities. And and, and Tilly is saying, you know, you should go at it the other way around. And yeah, Eric Gordon Wright is basically saying, you know, this is like this is kind of like a difficulty to do with, like trying to look at this empirically as opposed to a, a kind of a theoretical decision. What do people make of that? Like, is Tilly full of shit here? Is that a grown right? Let me just provide the clarifying text here from the book. The idea is basically this. The total empirically observed differences in earnings between two categories, say men and women, can in principle be partitioned into two main components. One, a component that is the direct result of systematic structural discrimination of various sorts, ranging from job exclusions to glass ceilings and promotion to unequal treatment within given jobs. Two, a component that is a direct result of human capital, effort, and other variables under the immediate control of the individual. This is not to reject the claim that these individual attributes might themselves also be caused by structural discrimination of various sorts, but simply to argue that at the time of employment itself, a decomposition of intergroup differences can be made between a component tied to individual attributes and a component tied to categorical discrimination. The pragmatic question thus becomes, what is the best way to make estimates of these two components? One could try to get direct measures of each component, or one could try to measure one quite accurately and then attribute the remainder of the variance to the other. For pragmatic reasons, the latter strategy is generally adopted because obtaining good measures directly about the effects of discrimination is difficult. Discrimination is not inherently treated as a substantive residual in such a study, but simply a methodological residual. I mean, he's got a good point in terms of practicality of research. Certainly, it would be very difficult to disaggregate these things into hard quantities. It's, it's also conceivable, at least as far as I can see, that, yeah, you bring a certain history with you to your place of employment. The issue, though, is what if you're employed there for 20 years? Like, you're not the same person anymore, you know? It just seems to me that it's like, I, I couldn't imagine how you could go about doing it statistically any other yeah. way. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, I, I agree with that. Uh, it's it's way too difficult, but I, I can see a theoretical argument against 
taking this as real. Yeah, that's what I was thinking, too, because I'm like, well, there might be factors that you can't explain for by just uh, applying the residual to these relational factors. All those second order effects. (laughs) Right. I mean, like you, you could have you could have like almost infinitely multiplying second order downstream effects from this. And like, but I get the point. Like, I also have no idea how the hell you would like. I don't know if we had the God machine, maybe we could figure this out. But I I'm feel like, I'm yeah, yeah, I feel like, Tom, you need to you need to do the Marxist version of psychohistory from the Asimov books for this to really be definitively solved. Excellent. I'm on it. I'm on it. Although, by the way, that would not make EO right happy because psychohistory assumes that aggregates are predictable and individuals are not because they're not one to one the same. Yeah, that's why we're not able to uh, predict like tides and stuff. We just look at individual waves. You know, it's n- none of these things are macro effects. They're not predictable at all. Macro now, effects aren't real. No, 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 no macro no. effects. All micro no effects. Macro. Okay, uh, let, let me just read this last slide then. Th- that's kind of it. What do we make then of, of Tilly overall? Like, what do people I, think? I think I might like Tilly better than Wright, but... <laughs> yeah, agreed. I, I, I think his napkin uh, graph was really silly. He was being a silly Tilly to to take a line from uh, from uh, Disco, but... Uh, silly Stilly. Yeah, that yeah silly Stilly. Stilly. Yeah, that's right. Otherwise, yeah. I, I found his stuff to be like a lot more interesting and convincing than Wright's criticisms. I, I, I agree. What I what I find interesting is like he he actually provides a framework for me to throw at people when they when they try to do the race reduction versus class reduction thing, and I'm just like, oh yeah, I can class reduce and explain these problems here. Have a text. There's math you can do. Math is magic. No, I, I find it very good. I find it a really interesting way for me to think about like how exploitation actually works and how it kind of would evolve, you know, the different mechanisms for it. I think it's, you know, the idea of, you know, cost versus effectiveness. I, I think he's probably correct as well that there is a kind of an evolutionary element to it, you know, like a where like, you know, they tend towards this solution. I think that is, I think we see it everywhere, you know, so I think it's interesting. I think it fits into the Marxist kind of world very well for somebody who doesn't even consider themselves a Marxist, not even in the slightest. It's it's also interesting that Wright doesn't criticize his uh, transhistorical perspective at all. Yeah, I thought that was weird. He did a bit, Kyle. He Sorry, did only uh, in the category. He did only in like the graph. The order of the graph. Right. Yeah. He, he did, yeah. but the, he didn't. You're right, though he didn't he didn't object to this being being posited as a a, a kind of framework that a, would emerge in any economic system, you know, any mode of production. He did. He did this point here. This is a direct quote. It is much less clear why this should be a transhistorical universal. Yeah, but what I'm talking about, Tom, is the uh, broader framework that Tilly developed, not just that specific one. Because yeah, yeah, we, yeah, we, we talked about in previous episodes how there's yeah, a yeah, yeah. Uh, disjunction between uh, Tilly's approach and Marx's approach in terms of thinking about history. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Fair enough. Yeah, that it doesn't wrap. It's not fully. It doesn't wrap around back to change the game. It reminds me of. It reminds me of someone like Peter Turchin, another person who like actively makes sure that you understand that he's not a Marxist 
who makes claims very similar to Marx, but then but then tries to just with a few equation modifications apply them transhistorically based off the Pareto effect. And when you when you actually look at what he's doing, you're like, there's some sketchy assumptions in here once you start making it go from time period to time period. And you also have to make a lot of the variables almost meaningless because he starts talking about elites because that it's a class you don't have to define. Like it's just a relative to everything else criterion, but it's, it feels similar to me in that sense. And it is interesting that Wright objects in the specific, but not in the general. But I also suspect that if you look at the methodological individualism, for example, um, how can you believe in modes of production at all? If you're a methodological individualist, I remember that was the other, that was the other analytical Marxist problem with G.A. Cohen is they pointed out that G.A. Cohen accepted modes of production, thus was not a methodological individualist, and thus was out um, yeah. until he rewrote the book. So, Yeah, it, it's, yeah. Uh, it's, it's a nonsensical concept in this uh, neoclassical framework. Well, wait a second now. Are, are we not all... Do we, do, are you saying there's people on this panel that believes in modes of production? <laughs> no, it couldn't thing. be us. <laughs> <laughs> My God! Imagine being a Marxist yeah, as, as, in the modes of production. Like fucking hell! You can like, you can take. I I give it to some people. They can say, "Oh, there's a little technical problem with value theory here," or "I disagree with Marx on this." But modes of production, like, well, like, I mean, I I think of you that each mode of production is more clearly a singular mode than the prior one. Like, like for example, feudalism is more diverse. Antique economy is more diverse than feudalism. Feudalism is more diverse than capitalism. But each, it's still pretty. Like I can I can tell. When we're in a capitalist and when we're not, right? Like, and I can tell when something's highly based on manorial economies versus highly based on conscripted enforced labor, i.e. slavery or something like that. You can tell the difference between a teenager and an adult. Right. <laughs> but sometimes it's a bit shaky and you can get it wrong. Right. It, yeah. And, and sometimes like the, the teenagers are weirder and they're, te they're, they're awkward. They, they might change who they are a couple of times, but we, we know where they're going. God, that's a terrible metaphor that I'm... Communism, Derek. Well, I, I, I think uh, it's kind of an Aristotelian argument there. It's interesting. <laughs> well, you, you know, when people really want to criticize... Uh, I've noticed the new trend in criticizing Marx is to, to say he's a crypto-Aristotelian. And I will say... He's an Aristotelian. <laughs> Isn't he? he well, he... Largely. He, Largely, and, and, and there are problems that emerge from that, but I also don't think that's what defines Marx. I mean, what's interesting about Marx is where he is original, but, you know, I don't know. Yeah. But yeah. Why? what's the problem with Marx's Aristotelian? Tell, tell us there, one minute. Whether or not Marx has an absolute teleological view of development or not, whether or not okay, you yeah. can conflate the normative and the descriptive, and I think most of us Marxists now say... You you kind of can't even if they're all even if there are laws of motions of history because probability exists. There's a certain amount of indeterminism. you'd like to help fund the book that Donald and myself are writing about communist economic planning, please head over to the website 
the Classless Society in Motion.com, where you can donate to our fund to help us get this book out in a finite time. Everybody who donates will get a signed copy of the book when it's released. So head on over there today and help us with this really important project. This show is a member of the Emancipation Network, a Marxist podcast research collective. Make sure to check out our network sister podcasts, General Intellect Unit, Jumpsuit Utopia, Mortal Science and Swampside Chats. And if you'd like to help out the show, please remember to head over to Patreon and throw me a few commie dollar. On this episode, you heard the theme tune The Order of the Pharaonic Jesters and Night of the Purple Moon by Sun Ra and his orchestra. Thank you for listening and please join me for the next episode of From Alpha to Omega. Thank you.